Second Chronicles 21 and 1. I'm going to read a somewhat lengthy passage of Scripture, but we love God's Word, don't we? We love the Word of God. I'm going to tell you, and I'm just going to warn you before I read this passage of Scripture here, it's going to sound really, really bad, but there's going to be good news, but it's going to be the bad news first. And you realize there are a lot of things that you can learn in life of things that you want to do from people's example, right? You can look at situations and you can study and you can read and you can look at people's lives. You go like, man, that's, I like that right there. I think I'd like to adapt and adopt that principle into my life because I like that. Do you know it's also true that you can look at people's life and see bad stuff and be like, I ain't never going to be like that. <laughs> if God has anything to do with it and I, and I have anything to do with it, I don't want to be like that. That guy's a jerk. And I don't want to be a jerk. I got a don't be a jerk policy of life. Don't be a jerk. Sometimes I'll tell myself that. Don't be a jerk. Right? You ever feel like being a jerk? I know I'm in a Holy Ghost church and all y'all are perfect. You got your, your, you know, you got your, your halos and I think I'm preaching to real people though. And we can learn from bad people what things we don't want to do. And the guy that I'm going to share you in the Bible, he's a bad dude. He's a bad guy. So are you ready? <laughs> now, Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers. That's a biblical term for dying. We probably ought to clarify that. When the Bible says they slept, it means they died. Their physical body died. It's not soul sleep because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you physically die, you are in God. Your spirit is still alive, though your body is dead. I'll, I'll leave that alone. Let's go. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And here, here's the guy, Jehoram, his son, reigned in his stead. Jehoram. And he had brethren, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, and Michael. He's got Mike's one of his brothers, and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them great gifts of silver and of gold and of precious things with fenced cities in Judah. Man, that'd be cool. But the kingdom gave he to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. He's the oldest brother out of all of these eight children, eight boys, seven other brothers he has. Now, when Jehoram, the oldest brother, was risen up to the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and slew all his brethren with the sword and diverse also of the princes of Israel. That word slew, it means he killed them. He killed his brothers. That's the kind of brother I want to have. That's scary. That's bad sibling rivalry problems. He just wiped them out. He took out the competition. Jehoram was 30 and 2 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 8 years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Not good, like as did the house of Ahab. For, notice, for he had the daughter of Ahab to wife. He had a stupid wife. He did. He did. She was stupid. You can't fix stupid. She was. She was a bad woman because she was like her parents, Ahab and Jezebel. That was his. He took their daughter to wife. Bad guy. He wrought that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Howbeit the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David as he promised to give a light to him and to his sons forever. In his days, the Edomites, so as a result of his perverted leadership, his lousy leadership, the Edomites revolted from under the dominion of Judah and made themselves a king. So he's got revolts happening in his kingdom. He kills his brothers. He marries this bad woman. He's got Edomites are revolting from under. He's just, he's just a, he's a train wreck of a leader. He's a train wreck. And then Jehoram went forth with his princes and all the chariots with him, and he rose up by night and smote the Edomites, which compassed him in and the captains of the chariots. So the Edomites revolted from under the hand of Judah unto this day. The same time also did Libna revolt from under his hand. Now he's got Libna revolting. He's got Edomites. He's got Libna. They're just all rebelling, and it's just a great big mess. Because, this is important, 10, because. Why did all this happen? Because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. There are consequences to not following God's will. Can I say that clearly? There are negative consequences to not doing what God wants you to do. Like it is equally true that there are positive consequences to doing what it is that God does want you to do. This guy's a perfect example of just doing everything the wrong way. 
Everything's falling apart. He's got all this stupid, crazy stuff happening because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. And to top it off, verse number 11, moreover, to top it off, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit fornication and compel Judah thereof. It's just it's, it's as, as if it just keeps getting worse. It's in verse number 12, you're going to find this is the only mention in the entire book of Chronicles of Elijah the prophet. The only mention in Chronicles. There came a writing to him. The prophet writes a letter to him. They're saying it's near the end of Elijah's ministry and he's... He's probably not physically doing well, but the prophetic word is still powerful as it's inscribed with, with ink and letter. And the letter is written to him. There came a writing to him from Elijah the prophet saying, Thus saith the Lord God of David thy father, because thou hast not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat thy father, nor in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but has walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and hast made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a-whoring, like to the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, and also has slain thy brethren of thy father's house, which were better than you. Behold, with a great plague will the Lord smite thy people and thy children and thy wives and all thy goods. That's not the kind of snail mail I want from my preacher. You don't ever want your pastor to have to call you up or send you a letter like that. And this, this is where it gets even worse. And thou shalt have great sickness by disease of thy bowels. You get the word picture, right? Until thy bowels fall out by reason of the sickness day by day. It's going to be bad. Moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram, the spirit of the Philistines and of the Arabians that were near the Ethiopians. And they came into Judah, break into it, carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house and his sons also and his wives, so that there was never a son left him save Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. And after all this... The Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable disease. And it came to pass that in process of time, after the end of two years, he's got this two-year terrible, horrible, there are diseases that are curable, there are those that are incurable. His was incurable. Two years, his bowels fell out by reason of his sickness. So he died of sore diseases. I want you to notice these. This is where I'll really be preaching from this morning. And his people made no burning for him like the burning of his fathers. Thirty and two years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. And notice this phrase, and we're going to work on this a little this morning, and departed without being desired. People made no burning for him. He departed without being desired. Howbeit they buried him in the city of David, but not in the sepulchres of the king's. He has a burial, but it's infamous. It's terrible. The end of his life, he was a great big zero. He was a zero. The end of his life, they, were, they made no burning. They didn't celebrate him. They didn't celebrate his leadership. They didn't celebrate what he did. They're kind of like, thank God he's gone. <laughs> and I want to preach on that. <laughs> Amen. Jesus, thank you. Your presence has been real in this house, Lord, and we, we don't take that for granted. Your anointing, your blessing, your power, your spirit, your favor, and all that you are, Lord, we're grateful. I just pray this morning that you would anoint this, this message. I, I pray somehow out of these scriptures that you would inspire. I pray you would call deeply into our hearts and our lives and help us to do something and be something with our lives. In Jesus' name, I pray. And somebody said amen. Amen. You may be seated. God bless you. Jehoram, this guy in the Bible, his name is Jehoram. He's 32 years old when he becomes king. And the Bible says it was a short. Some of these kings, they had enduring legacies, and they, they, many of them led for many, many decades. His was a very, very short period of leadership, eight years. So eight, 40 years old, he's 32. At 40 years old, he's dead and he's gone. Unfortunately, the scripture uniquely gives us 20 verses, doesn't have a lot more to say about him because there wasn't much good to say. The years of his life, those eight years, two of them were sickness-driven, so he had basically six years of leadership that when we look back at, at the, the, uh, basically his life, we just see, we see infamy. We, we see a man that did it all wrong. We see a guy that his life was filled with scandal, 
His life was filled with disgrace. And I, I think this is, I guess, I don't know if you feel this way, especially as we begin to round out this year and look at a brand new year. I just, I think about, here's a young man, 32 years old. What wasted potential? Because every one of us, we have a life that God's given us. It's a blessed thing. If you're taking in oxygen this morning and you're kicking out carbon dioxide, you ought to say, thank God. Amen. If you're alive, you ought to say, thank God. Well, let me tell you something about being alive. Being alive is about potential. There's a reason I've said this before. You probably know where I'm going, so it's not a shock. It doesn't have the same shock value. But I really wish sometimes that when somebody came to the altar and they got the Holy Ghost and we got them baptized, that we could just take out a pistol and just shoot them dead. You say, wow, that's harsh. Because at that moment in time, when you're born again of the water and the spirit and you're vertically right with God, you're never more ready to go to heaven than that moment when you've been born again into the kingdom of God. You're ready. I mean, you're ready to meet Jesus. If Jesus called you home, you'd go home like you'd be immediately transferred and transfigured and, and you would be raptured out of here and you'd be in heaven and it'd be great. But you know what? God doesn't do that. The fact is that he leaves us here on the earth and we don't know exactly how long that we have. It may be a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade. It may be 60, 70 years. We don't know. But the Lord takes a tremendous risk in leaving us here on this planet. After he thoroughly saves us, he takes a great big risk in leaving us here. But can I tell you, he's got trust and he's got confidence in his work and what he can do in and through us in leaving us here because he's, oh, he's got something that he wants to do with our lives. If that wasn't the case, he'd just take you home immediately. But he's leaving us down here because he's got a work for us to do. He's leaving us down here, Paul Trivet, because when he's done with our life, uh, what we look like at the end of our life when we walk with God versus the beginning of our life is going to be dramatically different because of what the Lord has done. Yes, 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 yes. And that's what God's all about. It doesn't matter where you are. You can come to God a freak. You can come to God a mess. But the beauty is, as you learn to cooperate with his grace and his mercy and his presence and his power, he'll begin to change you. I know some of us may think, well, I'm good the way I am. <laughs> but you know what? God's not done with you yet. He's not done with me yet. But what he's going to do is he's going to work with us. He's going to teach us. He's going to train us. He's going to help us so that this growth pattern happens in our life. So the end of our life looks much better than what it did at the beginning of our life. That's why I look across this church today. I see a lot of good-looking people. You're just good people. I look at you, but I know what you used to be. You didn't used to be that. You were a mess. And I just, I come to give hope to anybody that's coming to this church this morning and your life's a mess. And you walk in and you look around, you're like, man, these people kind of got it together. These people got it together. I could never be like that. Look at their nice, quaint little families, their little leave it to beaver. You don't know who that is? Just look it up. Leave it to beaver. You got mom cleaver and the quaint little family. You look around, all these cute little Pentecostal people and their lives all together and they got it all together. Ho, ho, ho. But if you only knew how messy these people were before Jesus got a hold of their life. If you only knew the addictions that were in their life and the mess that was in their life and how messed up they were in their head and in their heart, you'd say, well, maybe there's hope for me. Come on, anybody real here today that God's changed your life? Can you testify to anybody that's hopeless here this morning that feels like there's no hope for them to say that's the way I used to be? But Jesus picked me up. Jesus washed me in his blood. Jesus filled me with the Holy Ghost. Jesus changed my life. And I'm not what I used to be. I'm not all that I can be, but I'm not what I used to be. Thank God, because the Lord has changed my life. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about potential. This dirtbag is 32 years old. He's given a crown. He's given a kingdom. He's given potential. He had all these things that could have, should have, would have been, and none of it happened. Because he wasted the potential of his life. We read about, I think there are some very important lessons that can be pulled out of Jehoram's life. The Bible says in chapter 21 and 4 that he had six brothers. I don't care how much you fight with your brothers. You ought to thank God you have brothers. Amen. Me and my brothers don't get along. We'll learn how to get along. This guy, you know what he did? He killed his own brothers. Can you imagine? This older brother does the unthinkable. And it's unique that the scripture is clear enough to point out the character of his brothers. It says they were better than he was. And maybe that's what it was about. Maybe it was his jealousy. They were, he had all the power. He had the authority. He's the king. But he had, he had brothers that were better than he was. And maybe felt like they'd be some sort of competition to him. There's some kind of jealousy that's working there. And he says, well, I just, I'm going to take out the competition. And the guy murders his own family, his own brothers. What a bad guy. Not the kind of guy that you want to be your older brother. The Bible says in 21 and 6, he marries the daughter of Ahab. He's got a terribly poor choice in women. You ever read about old Jesse? I mean, you know, you got the little baby naming books. Got all these names. I think Olivia was the most popular name like the past five years. Olivia's like the most popular name for girls. Congratulations. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, one, you anybody gonna have a baby? You gonna have a baby little girl? One thing you're not gonna name her is Jezebel. <laughs> she was a bad woman. She's one of the bad girls of the Bible. She was. And this guy says, oh. He's in, he's in little Judah, and he looks at Israel, and he's looking at the world. He's looking at the success of Ahab, the world, the, the, you know, the, the kingdom of the transgressors. And he, and he looks at them with admiration. He says, oh, man, if I could be like them, if I could be like them, if I could marry their daughter, I could be like my father-in-law, Ahab. What a loser. I could be like, you know, my wife could be like my mother-in-law, Jezebel. <laughs> Now you talk about having a mother-in-law. <laughs> Insert mother-in-law joke. Let's move on. I got a wonderful mother-in-law. But, okay, what do you say? Can I make a point here this morning? Listen, we got young people here quite often. I'm, I'm praying for our young people. I'm praying for the unmarried that are in our church. And I pray, oh God, give them a good spouse. Give them a good husband. Give them a good wife. Listen, young people, you just got back from convention. Your ears should be highly tuned right now. The, the most important decision you'll ever make in your life outside of Jesus Christ is the person that you walk down the aisle and you say, I do, too. The most important decision you'll make in this life outside of Jesus is the person that you marry. And you want to make sure Jehoram shows us that a poor choice in marriage can be part of your own personal demise. But, oh, thank God the Lord can give us a good spouse. Amen. He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor from the Lord. That if you're gonna if you're gonna have a wife, young men, you're gonna have to look for her. I'm just waiting for her to come to me. I'm just sitting here right in the front row. I'm waiting for her to come along. The Bible says, He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor from the Lord. He that find, But you need to find a good husband. You need to find a good wife. Because old loser Jehoram made a series of terrible choices in his life that brought heartache to him and destruction to him and everything that surrounded him because he made bad choices. He marries the daughter of Ahab. One of the most important decisions of his life, and he blows it. 21 and 11 says he made high places and caused Israel to fornicate. Let me tell you something about leadership. Leadership is important. It's very, very important. Because leadership sets tone and direction, and that's important. Here's a guy that, that builds and creates high places 
of false idol worship in Judah. He created opportunities. He created a space where that people could then begin to turn their eyes away from the one true and living God and turn their eyes to ungodliness and worldliness and sin and all the debauchery that comes with idol worship that much of it does deal with fornication. And this messed up leader led them wrong. His leadership led them down a wrong pathway that was ultimately away from God. What a sad, sorry case that Jehoram was. Terrible leader, terrible king. And God was not happy with him. I was having a conversation with someone very, very recently, and, and in some ways I'm asking myself the question, and I hope that the Lord will restore it. I've been praying about it lately, that God will restore it to our country, and that is a fear of God, because there's a lack of a fear of God in our country today. People aren't afraid anymore. They just, they just live however they want to live, and there's no fear of God in our country anymore. But I'm telling you what the Lord wants to resurrect in our country is a fear of God. A fear of God. Because here's a guy that could do these things uh, without any sense of internal compass in his life. A fear is like, like, I can't do this. And, and let me tell you what, if you get to a point in your life that you ever make God your enemy, you are through in this world. And I, I'm along with any other preacher that will preach mercy, I'll preach grace, uh, but I'm also going to balance it with judgment. And let me tell you something about God. God's no fool. God's a good God. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. He's a merciful God. But he's also a just God. And if you ever make your life an enemy of God, you, sir, or ma'am, are in trouble. Your arms are too short to box with God. It scares me to death sometimes the way I see people live their life because inside there's a, a little trembling that happens within because there's a fear of God. There's a fear of God because he's a mighty God and he's a powerful God and he's a holy God and he's a just God and I must fear him. This guy did not. Jehoram, 32-year-old punk king, He's, he's just doing all this foolishness. And finally, the time comes where the judgment and the wrath of God is filled. And God says, okay, enough is enough. Oh, God, I got a message here to preach, but I feel like I cannot leave this point here. I feel like giving a warning to someone here this morning. If you have tried and you have played with the mercy of God and the grace of God, sir or ma'am, I give you a warning this morning because you can come to a place in your life. If you ever make God your enemy, you are through in this life. There is mercy, there is grace, but there is a place that you can turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, and you can come to a point of no return. And I am pleading with someone here this morning that you humble your life somehow and never allow yourself to get to a place of, of no return where all of a sudden God says, I have no other alternative other than I'm going to take care of this person. And listen, when God takes care of someone, the work will be thorough. The work will be complete. And when God's done judging somebody, they have been judged and it is complete. I don't know about you. I don't ever want to come to that place in my life. I need the mercy of God. I need the grace of God in my life. And so therefore, I will humble myself before the Lord. Jesus name. Can we lift our hands to the Lord right now just for a moment in Jesus name? Hallelujah, we receive your word today, Holy Ghost. Thank you, God. Thank you for mercy. Sometimes it comes, Lord, dressed as judgment. Thank you for it, oh God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Help us to be a people with the fear of God in our life. In Jesus' name I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This guy here, the scripture shows us that he got to a point where God finally said, hey, I'm dealing with this guy. And... It was, it was severe. The Bible says in verse number 18 of 21, chapter 21, the Bible says that God smote him in the bowels with an incurable disease. I'm very careful about this. I'm very careful with this subject right here because there are some people that will make indictments uh, against God in saying, listen, some things that happen in people's lives that is bad does not come from God proactively doing that to them. Okay. 
we get that? Are we theologically sound in that, in that concept? Not everything that bad, bad that had, Job is a prime example. Not everything that bad that happens in a person's life is because God brought that to them or brought the disease. Well, God gave me cancer. God gave me leukemia. I don't always believe that's the case. I don't believe that's always the case. I think we can see scripturally there are points, and specifically in this point here, this was a situation where God gave him an incurable disease. God said, I'm, I'm taking this guy out, and this is how I'm going to take him out. I'm not just going to take him out comfortably. I'm going to take him out as about as uncomfortable as it can get. And the Bible says that God smote him in his bowels with an incurable disease, and he had two years of suffering. And then the scripture says that his bowels fell out. You talk about he lived a messy life. And God said, okay, you lived a messy life. I'm going to give you a messy end. And he dies in ignominy in a pile of his own rotting fecal matter. Defecating to death. And it was, I told you it was going to get bad. But it was the sad end to a stupid, worthless life. That's exactly what it was. The Bible says in 19, and his people made no burning for him like the burning of his fathers. 30 and two years old was when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. And notice 20 says, and he departed without being desired. He departed without being desired. Howbeit they buried him in the city of David, but not in the sepulcher of the kings. Let me read it in New Living Translation. It brings a little little understanding. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. This is what it says. No one was sorry when he died. No one was sorry when he died. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the royal cemetery. No, I want you, can, I want those words, can those words resonate in your mind this morning? I want them to resonate in your heart. No one was sorry when he died. Nobody, there was no sadness. There was no tears. There was no, there was no oh, he's, he's gone. He, here's a guy that had the opportunity to do good, but he lacked the character to seize the moment and to seize the day. He was a small man. He was a pitiful person. He lived a life of dirty deeds. And the final punctuation at the end of his worthless poor life was that no one was sorry when he died. Can you imagine? No one was sorry when he died. It was like they heard that he died. It was like, next, who cares? What an idiot. So glad that he is gone. So glad we are rid of that guy. So glad that lousy leader is gone. Whew, he's dead. Thank God. We have been delivered. Hasta la vista, buddy. Bye-bye. It was absolute ambivalence, uncaring. So what? No one was sorry when he died. I personally participated in dozens of memorial services, and I genuinely believe that every life is made in the image of God. In the image of God, we are made as human beings, and we all have a beginning, and we all have an ending. I don't mean to bring that. That's not bad news. That's good news for a child of God. This earthly life has a beginning, and it's appointed unto man once to die than the judgment. Everybody that lives, unless you're Elijah or uh, Enoch or by the rapture, everyone that lives at some point is going to die. But what really matters is the dash that comes between the date of your birth and the date of your death. That dash that's in between represents a lifetime of living. It represents relationships. It represents deeds that are done. It represents dreams that have either died or they have been fulfilled. It represents a life of living. It represents relationships. It represents people that you've connected with. It represents good things that have been done and bad. That dash in between, and I would say here today that every memorial service ought to have, it ought to have its highlights. It ought to have its good points. And all the memorial services that I've been a part of, it's stories and it's memories and it's fondness and they're going to be missed. And, you know, people are standing and talking about that life. Not so with Jehoram. 
Jehoram, everybody was glad he was gone. Furthermore, after he was gone, nobody missed him. Hmm. Tell you what I've been thinking about. What I've been thinking about is we ought to live our lives in such a way that if we're gone tomorrow, there ought to be a host of people that say, here's my message. I'm sad they're gone. For people to live their lives in such a way that based on the contributions of their life, the kind of person that they were, their godliness, their prayerfulness, their carefulness, their, their love for people, their kindness, the, the seeds that have been sown, the good deeds that have been done, that, that when a person is gone off of this earth, there ought to be a, something missing. There ought to be the feeling of, man, I miss that person. Where Wow, they were so special. They were so important for X reason and Y reason. They, they were so valuable in my life, but not, not Jehoram. Not Jehoram, he wasn't like that. I just attended a funeral just a few short weeks ago to some of you, a name that will be ring for many of you, Brother Lester Lear, Brother Lear. Brother Lear was the district secretary of Minnesota district for, I think, 33 years. He, all those years, he had characteristics of his life. I worked with him. He was my district secretary for one year. I was privileged to work along with him. And the more that I got to know him, the more that I liked him. Isn't it good that the closer you get to people and the more that you get to know about them, the more you like them? There are some people that are really great from a distance. You know what I'm saying? And then the more you get to know them, you're like, uh, I, I, I kind of liked him at a distance. <laughs> The more I got to know him, the, 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 the more I saw his character, the more I saw his, his kindness, the more I shared with his family a couple of stories. And one of the stories I shared with him, we finished up a board meeting and all the other board meeting uh, members had left. And we were sitting there at the table and here's this elder. He's my elder by 30 years, 35 years. And, you know, just this stalwart, godly man. He's always been there. Brother Lear, just Mr. Got it all together. And Brother Lear began to share with me some of the struggles that he was going through at that point of his life and I thought like like can I touch this guy's real <laughs> like I thought you like floated around I thought you were like the epitome of perfection but in showing his vulnerability it made me respect him more but at his funeral family members people talking about his life and I and I just thought when I was at that funeral that's the way it should be right there you know why because he lived a good life he lived a worthy life, and we say, I'm sad he's gone. That's not the case with Jehoram. His father-in-law, his mother-in-law was Ahab and Jezebel, a bad man married to a bad woman in a bad family doing bad things. The end. He's dead. Good. Let's, let's, let's visit the graveyard of this deceased deadbeat. What does this epitaph say? Nothing. It's blank. Nothing noteworthy. Wasted potential. Furthermore, I got to, to, to read through this and understand why does the scripture take note of this? It says that he was not buried in the royal cemetery. What does that mean? They said they gave him a burial, but not in the royal cemetery. You say, what difference does it make? I'm just, I'm just going to say this. Like, like when I die... It, I, I, and I die, and, and I, I don't know the way. I don't really want to be put in a coffin. I don't think that's very attractive. But that, that sounds like I'm a little uh, claustrophobic. I don't know. I don't like the idea of being burned either. That doesn't sound very attractive either. I mean, none of it sounds good, if you don't know the truth. Put me in a little urn. Don't put me on a shelf in some house somewhere. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Winnebagosh. <laughs> I mean, nice. I don't know. At the end of the day... When, when, when I die, can I just say this, child of God, when you die, wherever your body rests on planet Earth isn't going to matter to you, really. You're like, well, I want, I want such and such graveyard. I want to be next to great-great-grandma Grunt, and I want to be next to, you know, cousin Ted. And I, that's, where I want to, that's where I want to be laid to rest. You're not going to care where your, your dead decomposing body is laid to rest. It's not going to matter. It's not, it's not going to matter because you, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you're with God, you're going to just be like, man, it's going it's to be so good. It's going to be like heaven. <laughs> right? So I'm thinking about this and I'm like, they didn't bear. What difference does it make wherever he's buried? Let me tell you the difference it makes because it matters to your posterity. It matters to your legacy. It matters to your kids. 
It matters to the people that love you. It matters to the people that are around your life. On Memorial Day, when they go to that place, and how many times we've been there, and how many of you have been there, and you lay flowers on the grave, that person really isn't there anymore, but you're able to, there, there, there's, there's memories that are had. There's some form of connection that is made. And yet the scripture points out to us that he was not buried in the sepulcher of the kings. That's not where they lay. They did not lay him in the royal cemetery. Why is that? Because for that body to be laid in the royal cemetery would confer upon that life that was lived certain honors. There were honors placed. If you were placed into that cemetery, it would mean like this was a special person. So that, that your posterity and your children, your grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, the people that worked in the court around this guy would be like, oh, I knew that guy. So when I visit that, that's such a special thing. So that those that are in the land of the living, it is communicating something to those uh, that have gone on before them. This guy lived in such a way that he was a king and was given this position, but he didn't honor the position nor the opportunity that was given him. He squandered his moment and wasted his opportunity. In fact, he did the opposite to the point that no one cared when he died. No one was sad. He wasn't given a special resting place uh, that other people could go to and point to. His children, his grandchildren, those that work with him, none of that mattered to any of them because he wasted his life. I've come to preach to this church this morning. It matters how we live our life. I've come to preach to this church. It matters the way that we live. It matters that we live honorable to God. It matters that we make investments in people. It matters that we make momentary deposits in life and love people and are good to people and live an honorable life. It matters the way that we live our life. Because we're handing something to those. We're making deposits every day that we live to the people that are around us, the way that we talk, the way that we walk, the way that we live, the way that we show kindness, the way that we exemplify Jesus in the world today. It is, it is giving out gifts to the people. We are sowing seeds every day of our life. And I want you to know today that you matter and your life matters to God. It matters to your family. It matters to your children. I thank God we've got, years ago, we had very few men in this church, and we started praying men into this church. And I thank God we've got men in this church now. we got godly men. I want to remind you, men, it pays off uh, to live godly. It pays off to be an example to your boys and your girls. Uh, it pays off to do the right thing. Uh, it pays off to get up and go to work. Uh, it's, I know... Careful how I say, I was gonna say it's not sexy. It's not really exciting, right? It's called the daily grind. It's the grind, it's the grind. You don't wake up every day and feel seraphims. You don't levitate out of your bed Pentecostal on Monday. It doesn't work like that. But you get up, you live for God. You, I mean, there may not be trumpets blaring. He has showed up at the work site. He is an anointed child of God. The angel's singing, it doesn't happen like that. It's life. We live this thing called life. We live life. But I want you to know that the way you live your life, sir, it matters. It matters to God. It matters to the little bambinos that are corralling around your knees. It matters to those grandbabies that are around us, how we live our life. Because people are watching there's a thing called legacy. There's a thing called posterity. There's a thing called what we leave behind. It matters. There's a thing called influence. Long after we breathe our last breath, there's this thing called influence that lives beyond this present life. And though you may die and be dead, your influence can still, like ripples in a pond, be still exit outward and be influencing long after you're gone the way that you live your life it matters oh god oh god it matters it matters it matters 
I believe people ought to say when you're gone, I'm sad they're gone. This guy, nobody was even sad. He's gone, so what? Cool. He's dead, great. He's not around, wonderful. But oh, to live our lives in such a way that when we're gone, people would say, I'm, man, I miss them. I'm sad they're gone. Proverbs 22 and 1, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. I want to remind all of us here today, it's a simple truth, it's a known truth, but it's a truth worthy of reminder. Reputation does matter. Not for the sake of reputation. Not so that I can say that I'm somebody. But that my life is communicating. Every day that I live, it's communicating who I am and what I'm about and who I serve. That's why he said a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. If you had a choice between a million dollars and a good name, the wise man says, I'll take the good name every day of the week. A life of honor, a life of integrity is a good thing. And the beautiful thing, it is often bequeathed to the succeeding generation. It is given to the next generation a good name. Value that name. Protect that name. Thank God for that name, that reputation. It's a beautiful thing. Ecclesiastes 7.1, similar thought, a good name is better than precious ointment. This, this is going to shock some of us. But the day of death than the day of one's birth. That's what the wise man said. He said, and this is even crazier for you that hate funerals. I'll give you a little biblical admonition here. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the, go to the house of feasting. It is better to go to a funeral than a party. Why? For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Every time I go to a good funeral, I was just at one. I mentioned it just a few weeks ago. I will tell you this, as everybody's talking, I'm just thinking, oh, I want to be a better man. I want to be a better man. Oh, I want to make sure. Oh, that's, that was a great point right there. Oh, I want to make sure to incorporate that. Into my, I want to make sure I'm living like that. I want to make sure, yes, that's affirming my value system. It's affirming who I am. It's what he's saying. It's better to go to a house of mourning because we realize the end of all things. And a good memorial service should adequately honor a life that was well lived. A person who is gone will not benefit from that memorial service. We realize that, right? The memorial service isn't for the person that's dead. Because they're dead. They're gone. They're gone. It's not for them. It's for us. Every time we have a memorial service, it, it is a reminder that the day will come to all of us all of us, if the Lord tarries, that we should live lives of honor so that when that day comes, we can finish with a life well-lived and a legacy to hand on to others. It matters how you and I live. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Jesus, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost. Cement this truth into our hearts and into our lives. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Amen. It matters how we live. It matters what we're handing to the succeeding generation. I've got a little, you may have heard this before, I think it's very powerful though. A sociologist did a study and they went back, this is an old, old study, but many of you remember Jonathan Edwards, that, that great Puritan preacher of the 1700s. He was one of the most respected preachers in his day. He, was, he attended Yale University at the age of, yeah, Yale. That's kind of wild, back when it was spiritual. At the age of 13 and later went on to become the president of Princeton College. He married his wife Sarah in 1727. They were blessed with 11 children. Every night when Mr. Edwards was home, he would spend an hour conversing with his family and then praying a blessing over each child. Jonathan and his wife Sarah passed on a great godly legacy to their 11 children. An American educator, A.E. Winthrop, decided to trace the descendants of Jonathan Edwards almost 150 years after his death. 150 years after Jonathan Edwards' death, somebody went back. I mean, it's 
pretty easy now, 23andMe and all these different ways that we can do, you know, genealogical lineage studies and all that. But this guy did the hard work of tracking 150 years later. Jonathan Edwards, his kids, his kids' kids, his great-great-grandkids, and he, and, and he looked through the lineage of this man. And he found Jonathan Edwards' legacy includes one U.S. vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. How do you explain that? You explain that, that one godly man, it matters how I live, not just for me, but for those that are following me. It matters. It matters. Elders in our church, we are blessed with a wonderful church of elders in this church that are godly men and women. You'll see them right up here. They inspire me. They ins our pillars inspire me. And they like to have a lot of fun. It's crazy. These are the funnest people in our church. But, but they live for God and, and, and they're showing an example. I, I want to encourage you, stay with it, stay faithful, stay true, stay godly, stay prayerful, stay loving, stay involved, stay connected in ministry. Don't back up, don't let up, don't give up. Stay connected. It matters, it matters. I mean, really, I should be preaching this tonight. I'm doing a baby dedication. We're doing a baby dedication tonight. This is like a baby dedication message. It's a pre-baby dedication message. It matters. Uniquely, this same educator looked into the life of another man that was born around the same period of time. His findings are absolutely remarkable, especially when compared when you compare Jonathan Edwards to a guy by the name of Max Jukes. Max Jukes. Max Jukes' legacy came to people's attention when the family trees of 42 different men in the New York prison system were traced back to him. He lived in New York at about the same time period as Edwards. The Jukes family originally was studied by sociologist Richard L. Dugville in 1877. Jukes' descendants, now notice, included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 other convicts, 310 paupers, and 440 who were physically wrecked by addiction to alcohol. Of the 1,200 descendants that were studied, 300 died prematurely. Now, these contrasting legacies provide an example of what some may call the five-generation rule. And I quote, how a parent raises their child, the love they give, the values they teach, the emotional environment they offer, the education they provide influences, not listen, not only their children, but the four generations to follow. And man, I feel the Holy Ghost standing right here in this pulpit. The four generations to follow. It doesn't just affect the next generation. It affects four generations that are following. I'm saying here today, it matters how I live my life. And I've come to encourage godliness and righteousness and goodness and ministry investment and giving your lives to people and giving your life to the value and the things that matter because you will reap a wonderful harvest that will far outlive you long after you're dead and gone and your portrait may be, you know, above the fireplace in your great, 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 great grandchildren house but if you live right it's going to sow something that the generations to follow are going to be impacted it could be for a hundred years from now Christy the way you live your life that if the Lord tarries a hundred years from now it could be great 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 grandma she lived for God and because of that I've got a posterity I've got an apostolic lineage I've, I've got I'm tied to something I'm tethered to truth I've grown to love this like my great 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 grandma did and it's paid off in the years to come oh god oh god i'm sad you're gone i was talking to malcolm about it just the other day i was, I was thinking about tim i was thinking about tim and i thought man i just i think about him i miss him i miss him i miss his jokes I miss his way of being able to lighten a situation with his, his just his way. 
And if you look around this building, everywhere in this building, it's got his fingerprints on it. Everywhere you look, his fingerprints are there. And it's not just the physical things. It's not just the building. It's not just the general contractor. It's not just the, the faithful board member that, that took a young pastor under his wing, 25 years old, and said, I believe in your dreams. I believe in what God's calling you to do. And I'm not going to be a cynic. I'm not going to be a critic. I'm not going to stand on the sidelines and tell you all the reasons why it can't happen. But let's, let's do this together in providing his support. This church is where it's at today because of men just like that that committed their lives to God and living beyond them when they're gone something's missing and it gives us one more reason to go to heaven and it gives us one more reason to say oh it's not over I'm going to see him again one day and in every heartache and every trial it's going to be worth it because he lived for God and he finished this race well and he did what the Lord bid him to do and we are the benefactors today in this church because of a good godly man in the way that he lived his life. I never met her. Her name was Donna, Donna Merrick. Six weeks before I met my wife, she passed away. She was 52 years old. It was too young. And I remember watching my, my wife and watching my father-in-law grieving the loss of a person, never knew her, never knew her. But she lived her life in such a way that her fingerprints, she, she has no massive endowment. She has no, she had, she didn't have dollars in a bank account, but she had her fingerprints on people's lives. And people would say, oh, she was there and she believed in me when no one else would believe in me. She was there and she prayed for me. She was always there. What are you talking about? I'm talking about a legacy. I'm talking about leaving something. Now you're gone, people. Oh, glad they're gone. That was Jehoram. What a loser. What a complete loser. But oh, we can live our lives in such a way that when we're gone, oh, that people would say, I'm sad they're gone. Wouldn't you and I, wouldn't you like to know that your life meant something? I know, I feel like we're getting deep here this morning. But I think it's important. Funerals bring all this back up to the surface. When a person's life is through, you reflect on these things over and over. And so I have to ask myself the question, what will I leave behind? When I'm gone, what will I leave behind? What will my legacy be? What will it matter? What are the things in my life that will matter when I breathe my last breath? What do I need to leave behind me? What? I may leave some paintings behind. I may leave, you know, a couple pens that I, I, I turn. I, 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 I'm, there may be a couple things like that, but, but you know what really matters? What will matter is that there will be some memories. What will matter is did I make my life count? I believe today we can make up our mind. Today, my life's going to count. My life's going to count. I'm not going to waste this precious gift called my life by living haphazard. I'm not going to burn up this precious gift called life by living carnal. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to waste this life by, by living being foolish. I'm not going to live my life by being the person that's just comfortable, always being on the periphery, always being on the outside edge, always just kind of hanging out around the side, never really getting in the middle of the church, not getting in the middle of God's kingdom. I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to get in and I'm going to get all the way in. I, I, I'm going to live for God and I'm going to live for God all the way. I, I want to adapt and adopt all of the principles of God's word into my life. I'm not going to be selective in a Bible buffet and just pick this or that. I want to please the Lord in my life. And I'm on a journey. I may not be there all the way yet. I may not be 100%, but there's one direction I'm facing. And I'm facing the direction of commitment. I'm facing the direction of righteousness. I'm facing the direction of pleasing God. I'm facing the direction of my life somehow making a difference. I've got a ministry. I've got a call on my life. I've got something that needs to be done 
for the Lord while there is yet time. And I want my life to count for God. That's, that, that's, that's, that's where I'm heading. What do you say? What do you say? What will I leave behind? What things really, really matter? Amen. As I come to a close, there are two primary things that I'll mention here. I think number one, there's a saying, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. I am encouraging all of us together, let's live for God dedicated. Make up your mind, I'm gonna be a faithful saint. I'm gonna pastor you right now, you ready? Make up your mind, I'm gonna be a faithful saint. Every time the doors are open, I'm gonna be in church. This may not be flashy, but this is, this is what really works. Sunday morning, Sunday night, life group, you're gonna find me here in church. I'm going to be gathering with the saints of God here so that when the final gathering happens there, I'm going to know what it's all about. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful in the morning. I'm going to be faithful at night. I'm going to be faithful to my life group. I'm going to church. Come on, somebody. Ooh, that was a little weak. I'm going to be faithful in my prayer life. I want a prayer life. I want to walk with God. I'm, come on, I may not be 100%. I'm not here to beat you up. But, but, but man, at some point, you got to figure it out. When am I going to pray every day? How am I going to pray every day? I need to do better. We all need to do better. You can always have greater conviction if you preach about prayer because none of us pray as much as we can. But, oh, God, help me. I want to be faithful in my prayer. I want to be faithful in my connection with God. I want to be faithful in my tithing. When that person stands up here and says, where's my wife at? We don't take an offering, just so you know. We don't take offerings around here. We receive offerings. If you took an offering, we'd be reaching in your pocket. And just, just to be safe here, if you're a guest here, we don't need nor want your money. We want you. We want you to be saved. We want you to know Jesus. This church, long before you ever came, all the bills have been paid. So we don't need you here to pay the bills. We don't need your money, okay? But you need, you need the faith and the faithfulness that comes uh, from giving the tenth unto God. The Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us that. Not because God's going, oh, I can't wait to get there a couple of bucks. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Give me a break. Think, I mean, oh, need your money. He's just, God, no, he doesn't. But he knows that you need to break the God of mammon in your life and your stubborn, rebellious attitude and spirit. That's what he knows. And that happens, you say, okay. And then it just gets so easy because God blesses. I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful in ministry. God, God has blessed this church all across this church. God not, did not just save us so that we can sit and we can soak until Jesus comes. Soak, soak, soak it all in. I'm just a soaker saint. Soak it in, but when you soak it in, then squeeze it out. And then come back Sunday, soak it in, and then Monday through Saturday, squeeze it out. Sunday, soak it in. Monday through Saturday, squeeze it out. That's called ministry. That's called ministry. If not, we become bloated. marshmallow puff man man great sir and after a while then the sermons don't touch you anymore it's like you can you can eat filet mignon 300 days in a row and then you hate steak i hate steak right because we're meant to divest what has been invested i want i want to give i want to i want to give i want to give for god's kingdom i want to make a difference build a solid ministry do a work for the lord do something for God. Amen? Second thing I'll say is this. Invest in others. Others. Not me, 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 me. Others. Invest in others. How, how, lift up my eyes. I'm being on a swivel. Others. 
others? How can I bless others? How can I help others? How can I teach others? How can I share what I've learned with others? How can I model a godly lifestyle and example to others? How about the children that are in my home? How about the kids that I'm raising? We're going to do a, a dedication tonight. It's going, to, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be wonderful. When you're holding that little child, you need to think about what am I putting into them? Oh, I want to put good things into them. I want them to grow up to love God. I want them to grow up to serve the Lord. I want them to, I want our young people. I thank God for the young people in our church. I want our young people to grow up loving God. What do you say? I'm sad they're gone. That's how we want to live. Stand together with me this morning, please, if you're able.